Matthew 9 is where we'll be today. Matthew 9, if you have your Bibles. Are you the type of person who, come Christmas time, and you open a gift from someone, and you look at it, and while the thought of it is nice, it wasn't exactly what you were anticipating. It wasn't exactly what you uh, had hoped for, but, oh, thank you. Are you the type of person who takes that gift and says, thank you, where's the receipt? Or are you the type of person who says, thank you, and keeps something that you really didn't want or think that you needed in the first place? Are you the type of person who, when you go to a restaurant and you order something and they bring you something else and you look at it and you go, eh, close enough. Or, you know, I was wanting lasagna, but, you know, spaghetti and meatballs, that's, you know, cl- close enough. Um, or are you the type of person who are li- like, you know, no, I ordered, you know, three meatballs and you gave me four or wh- whatever. You're, I mean, you're just, you're going to make sure and get it, get it right. What do you do in those situations? If, if I'm honest, I'm the, typically the person, um, I'm kind of afraid of what this says to the psychologist among us, but I'm the type of person usually who will take the gift and say thank you and be grateful for the, the, uh, the thought and put it on the shelf and forget that it existed. Or the type of person who, who gets it and looks at the spaghetti and meatballs and thinks, well, I wanted lasagna, but, you know, whatever, close enough. That's kind of, you know, that's where I, I fall. So what do you do? What type of person are you? What happens when the thing that you asked for and the thing that you received were not the same thing? What, what do you do when the thing that you expected and the thing that you got don't line up? What we're going to see in Scripture today is just one of these occasions where someone comes to Jesus for one thing and Jesus gives them another. So Matthew chapter 9 As we've been going through the book of Matthew together, we are in a a series within Matthew that goes through 8 and 9 mostly that we're calling All Authority. And we're seeing different accounts of the authority of Jesus. We saw week 1, which was a few weeks ago, Jesus having authority over sickness, that he healed the sick, that with his word the sick could be healed. We saw last week that he has authority over this present world that we live in, that he has authority over our creature comforts, that he has authority over the elements of the world itself, that he has authority over, over the demonic spirits that for a season have rule over this world. We saw that he has authority over them all. And so now Matthew is going to give us another example, another insight, another picture into the authority of Jesus. So the story begins, the account begins in Matthew chapter 9. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Now if you remember from last week, he had started in Capernaum, he had sailed across to the area of the Gadarenes on the, the east side of the lake. So now he has cast out the demons from the demon-possessed men and is now headed back to Capernaum, which was his own, which as Matthew tells us here um, and other places, that was his, his base, his home city. He grew up in Nazareth, but he based his ministry. He lived in the city of Capernaum. So he went home. And behold, look, some people brought to him a paralytic 
lying on a bed. Now, if you read Mark's account, which seems to be a parallel account to this, this is the familiar account that if you grew up in Sunday school, you learned uh, what happened in this story. This was the faith of the friends who showed up at the house, and it was so crowded. If you remember, he had, you know, he had cast out, or he had the mother-in-law, and crowds in Capernaum were already there. Now that he's back, it seems that the crowds were back. Mark tells us this, this story, that the friends had come, and, they'd, and, and the people had gathered, and they couldn't get into the house. And so they went up on the roof. They made a hole in the roof, it seems, and lowered the man into this. This is a dramatic scene. Matthew gives us, it looks like, the Reader's Digest version. So they came and did that. And when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw, when you think about that, what does it mean to say he saw their faith? He saw their deeds. He saw what they, they did. He saw them carry this man to him. He saw them, in Mark's account, lower, lower him through the roof. And a lot of times, when we think of faith, we think of faith as something that is internal. As something that is in our mind, something that we believe in our heart. But many, many times in Scripture, in fact, I would argue the majority of times in Scripture, we see faith as something that is expressed, something that is done. Faith doesn't just live in the heart. Faith lives in our hands and in our feet and in our words. Read again Hebrews chapter 11. And what do you see? By faith, Abraham went. By faith, someone did. By faith, they did. And what, what's happening here? Faith is something that these Jesus saw in them. And sometimes we think that faith is something that we have to, and we got to conjure up our faith. Many times, faith is simply acting on what we believe. Believing it to the point that says, I believe he's the healer in their case. I believe that he can heal this man. And I'm not just going to sit here and wait for him to do it. I'm going to go. We're going to pick him up. We're going to carry him. I don't care how far we have to go. We're going to go. And Jesus sees their faith. So think about this. We've already seen Jesus heal. And he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now put yourself in the position of the men who had carried their paralyzed friend. Why did they bring him there? Because the healer was there. Because this man had been paralyzed, we don't know how long, but had been paralyzed, he couldn't walk, he had to be carried places, he had to lay on his bed, and they carried him, and they get to the healer. They get to Jesus, and Jesus looks at the man and, and sees their faith, and what is Jesus' response to their faith? You're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And, and you look at that and you can't help but wonder, but Jesus, that's not why they were there. Jesus, that's not why they brought the paralyzed man there. They brought him so that he could be healed. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And behold, verse 3, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Why would they call Jesus a blasphemer? Because they knew that only God could forgive sins. They knew that no human being, no person, no rabbi 
no matter how good of a healer he was, no matter what kind of crowds were coming around him, that no one could forgive except for God. But Jesus, verse 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? So we see here, first of all, that Jesus knows their thoughts. Now, this, this could either mean one of two things, that Jesus has supernatural insight into their thoughts, but the language could also mean that Jesus is healing and ministering among the people, and he sees this group of scribes in the back with scowls muttering to themselves, and Jesus just perceives what's going on. But regardless, he understands. So he says to them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? That's a good question. Which is easier to say? The emphasis of that question falls on the word say. And we'll see the logic in just a moment. But which is easier to claim? Maybe you could say it that way. Which is easier to claim? Which is easier to verbalize? Your sins are forgiven, or take up your mat and walk. We would understand, theologically, that the, that the more difficult thing to do is to forgive sins than to heal. But Jesus is asking, which is easier to say? In fact, you see his logic. It keeps going. But, verse 6, that you may know that the Son of Man has, and here's our key word, authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. So which is easier to say? Get up, pick up your mat, and, and walk, or your sins are forgiven? Well, the easier thing to say is, your sins are forgiven, because nobody can see whether or not that happened. Nobody can have any, any visual. So what Jesus is doing, is he's doing the thing that is more difficult to do, in order to prove his authority over the thing which is more difficult to say. He's, so in order to prove his authority over sin, to be able to say, you know what, I can, I, can, I can do this. I have the authority on earth to do this, and let me prove it. Because it's more difficult to say, rise and walk. Because if I'm a fraud, everyone can see it. And so as proof of his authority over sin, he tells this man, rise up, and walk, and the man gets up. A paralyzed man. A man that had to be carried there by his friends gets up and walks home. Now, if you would have been there in that house in Capernaum, what would have been your reaction? What would you have thought about this teacher Verse 7 says, or verse 8 says, And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. It's the same type of thought, reaction, emotion that the disciples had on the sea when Jesus said, Peace be still. And the wind and the waves were calm. And they said, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And the crowds in Capernaum look at this and says, what 
what type of man is this who claims to forgive sins and then backs it up with healing? If he were a blasphemer like we claimed, surely God wouldn't confirm what this man is doing with this miraculous sign. They were afraid and they gave glory to God. They looked at it, and as we talked about last week, they saw this man with authority and realized that if I, if I don't submit to this man, if I don't submit to this authority, I am in trouble. This man has authority from God. And yet they glorified God. And so Jesus proves this, that he has authority, not just to heal, not just over the physical world that we live in, but authority over our own sin, authority over this man's sin. Authority not just to heal his body, but to heal his soul. Jesus looked at this man and saw that while he needed, needed a physical healing, what he needed more was forgiveness of sins. And while none of the prophets, none of the writers of the Old Testament or, or, or people of old, and especially the religious leaders of Jesus' day, none of them would have ever said anything like this. And Jesus looks at this man and says, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because he has authority to do it. He has authority over our sins. So he goes from there, verse number 9. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. If you read the other accounts in the Gospels, this is the only time that Matthew is called Matthew. Uh, the other accounts in Scripture where this happens, he's called Levi. Same guy. Um, just many times in Scripture, people would have two different names. Matthew, Levi, same person. And it seems that this, by this point, Jesus' ministry and his reputation and his fame had grown to the point... Because you, you just kind of read this offhand, and you're like, why did this guy, Matthew, just get up and go? Because by this point, he knew who Jesus was. This was no secret. Jesus was a household name in Capernaum. They knew him. He was a teacher. He was a rabbi. So he walks by this toll booth. And he says to Matthew, follow me. And he follows him. Now here's the significant part. The part that he was a tax collector, that, that he was sitting at a tax booth, is not just some little footnote in the story. Tax collector meant crook. It would be kind of like, you know, there's, there, are, there are professions in our day where there are probably good people in those, but just when you hear that, your, your mind automatically goes to, to crook, even though not everybody that's in it is a crook. You know, you, especially around financial things, you know. Uh, you know, IRS employee or, or a collections agent or um, hedge fund manager or whatever. I mean, our, it would just, a lot of those things we don't necessarily have positive connotations with those, even if there are good people in those fields. And that's what's going on here. Tax collectors were, as a group, as a whole, considered sinful people. They allied themselves with Rome. 
the occupying, the outside occupiers, the, the evil Roman army, they said, all right, well, Rome, we'll, we'll go to work for you. We will, we will collect taxes from our own people and give it to Rome. That's not good. It's not, not a good way to make friends. In addition to that, it was well known that they were crooks. That whatever, whatever amount that they were required to, to take as taxes, they usually took more, often by coercive or violent means, took more, pocketed it for themselves. We see in, you know, in the account of Nicodemus, where Nicodemus did this, and he said, if I've taken any, from anybody more than I owe, I'll repay them four times. So what's probably going on here, and I'll, I'll show a map for you, map people. Matthew, as they're here on the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum, Galilee is kind of a metropolitan type area. So here's the Sea of Galilee. Oh. Yep. Nope. There we go. There it is. So here's the Sea of Galilee. Um, Capernaum is right here. It sits here. Jesus had gone... Here's the region of Gadara. This is where the demon-possessed man. So Jesus had gone from here, somewhere into this region, cast the demons out, went back across the lake. And just to give you an idea, if you're like, how big is this? Um, the Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles this way and about 8 miles this way. So it's, it's a lake. It's not really a sea. It's a good-sized lake, but it's a lake. So Jesus had come back to Capernaum. Now this, is, this map shows kind of more of the regions. So if you see these lines here, this area, and there's, it, goes, it comes right here along the, the Jordan. This area is Galilee. You can see Nazareth is in Galilee. Okay, over here is an area called the Decapolis, ten cities that went farther down here. Up here was part of the Tetrarchy of Philip. And so you can see that Capernaum was near the border between the Tetrarchy of Philip over here in Galilee. Probably what Matthew was at his booth is he sat up somewhere, probably here in between Capernaum and Bethsaida, and he collected duty. He collected a tax on the goods that were being transported across this border. Now, this isn't in Scripture, but this is, you know, from some of you historical people, this is like your favorite part. And so this is, this is probably what, there's a good chance this is what's going on, that Matthew is, is set up, he would set up his tax booth somewhere out here, and as people would bring their goods from the Tetrarchy of Philip into Galilee, he would be there and he would collect his, his duty, his, his taxes for the Roman government. Regardless to say, all that to say, he was not a good guy. People didn't like Matthew. People didn't like tax collectors. These were undesirables. And yet, Jesus walks by, sees him at his, his tax booth, and says, come. Come with me. Come follow me. Come be like me. That's what he was saying. Come, come learn my ways. Come be one of mine. And Matthew gets up and goes, this is scandalous. This is not how rabbis operated. And yet, Matthew walks by this sinner. In fact, you'll see this phrase in, in the Gospels, and many tax collectors and sinners gathered around Jesus. And as, verse 9 again, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, probably Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, the scandal level just went to 11. I mean, it's just, 
in, in their culture, to have a meal with someone was to identify with them. To sit at the table and eat together were to say, you know what, you're... You're, you're with me. We're, we're, we're buddies. We're friends. I, I approve of you. I, I love you. You're with me. And, and Jesus goes by, sees Matthew, calls him, and now all of the tax collectors and sinners and all these people are all coming to, it seems like, Matthew's house, and they're sitting around Jesus and his disciples and Matthew and Matthew's friends, and they're having a meal together. This is not how religious leaders are supposed to act. This is not how rabbis are supposed to act. This is not how messiahs are supposed to do things. But Jesus not only has authority to forgive sins, Jesus loves sinners. He loves people who have gotten themselves into all kinds of trouble. He loves people who have hurt themselves and hurt other people. He loves people who have stolen, who have been immoral, who have been hurtful to others, who have sinned. He, he is not afraid of broken people. He calls them to his table and says, sit with me and let's eat because I love you. And so he calls and Matthew and all the tax collectors and sinners are there with him. Verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, kind of noticed here, just a little side note, that the Pharisees, so now we see the, Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, this, this uh, division between Jesus and the religious leaders really is getting its infancy here in Matthew 8 and 9 and is going to grow throughout the book. So just put that in the back of your head or if you're reading ahead. So I find it interesting that the Pharisees didn't ask Jesus. They went to his disciples. Um, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, Jesus, heard it, so they asked the disciples, Jesus speaks up for himself. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came... Not to call the righteous, but sinners. So his answer to the Pharisees, why, why do you eat with them? Why do you hang out with them? Why, why, are we, why is this whole thing going on? Jesus says it's not, the, it's not the healthy that need a sick. It's the doctor. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners. I came for people whose lives were broken. I came for people who had no other options than to call out for mercy. And then Jesus says to them, something that would have been demeaning to a Pharisee. Go and learn what this means. This is what a teacher would say to a student. Pat little Johnny on the head. All right, little Johnny, run off and, and, and study this verse and meditate on it and, and come back and tell me what, what you think. I mean, these were Pharisees. These were well-educated teachers, respected. And Jesus, like, sends them off, you know. Go, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice. Quoting from Hosea chapter 6. So let's turn there. Hosea 6. Let's see what Jesus is, is pulling out. When he quotes this for them, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What, what's he pulling out of Hosea? What is he seeing in there? So Hosea 6. While you're turning there, quick, quick, quick background of Hosea. Hosea was called to, to uh, prophesy to evil. Uh, Israel, if you remember the story, 
um, as an object lesson, God told Hosea to marry a prostitute, Gomer, um, to be a, an object lesson to the people that the people, the nation, they was like a, was like a prostitute toward God, and who always went off and, and worshipped idols and did this. I mean, that's this is a hard calling that Hosea has. So this is the context of the book. Hosea chapter six. We'll pick up at verse number four. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? He's calling on the people. He's God is exasper, exasperated. What am I going to do? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Now I'm not a I'm not really a poetry guy, um, but even I can pick up what's what's going on here. This is not you don't want people you don't want your wife or your husband to say to you your love is like the morning fog and the morning dew that vanishes quickly. This is <laughs> it, like it sounds poetic in the moment, but this is. This is not a good thing. In fact, I was driving in this morning, and, and the sun was up, but there was still, you know, fog, some fog in places that I'm looking out going, you know, in an hour, this is all going to be gone. And this is what God is saying. This was, this was the love of the people. This is how much they love God. It was like the fog and the dew. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets, and I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as light. God's going to deal with them. This is what it's saying. God's going to deal with them for their light, love, and devotion. And now verse 6, this is where Jesus is quoting. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What's, what's God? This is, this, is, this is God speaking as Hosea is recording it. These are not Hosea's words. These are God's words. God's saying, I, I desire steadfast love. Chesed is the Hebrew. It's a big, big word that we can't translate into English. And so you see it translated as all kinds of different things because it's really too big. Even as they translated from, from the Hebrew to the Greek Septuagint, um, they use the word mercy, um, which is what Jesus quotes from um, in Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 9. But it's this big idea of, you'll see it, loving kindness sometimes or steadfast love. Or, I mean, it's just this big covenant Love, a love that, that won't quit, a love that's not fickle, a love that is love and kindness and mercy and like all of this stuff just put into one huge packed word. And God is saying, I want love, mercy, loving kindness, mercy. I want that more than I want the offers of sacrifice than the bulls and the goats and the grain offerings you're, you're, what's the point that, he, that he's making? They, they probably still did those things. Carried them out. They were good at the sacrifice. They were bad at the love. And God said, I'd rather have love than rule keeping. He goes on to say, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. And there they dealt faithless with me, faith, faithlessly with me. Gilead, one of the cities, is a city of evildoers. I mean, this should have been a, you know, one of God's cities, a holy city. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so priests band together. And they murder on the way to Shechem, and they commit villainy. They're not, they're not, they're not following God's ways. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. 
Ephraim's whoredom is there, and Israel is defiled. The point that Hosea is making is that they were good at the details of the law, but their hearts weren't in it at all. They were good at measuring out their tithe or measuring out whatever, but they didn't love God. They didn't love one another. They didn't, they didn't show mercy to one another. They didn't show compassion to one another. They didn't carry this out. Their, their, their priests committed murder on the way to, to Shechem, to, on the way to, to, to a, you know, kind of a temple or a holy site. They, they committed murder. I mean, this is, these are people who, who do the right things, but they're, they're completely out of step with God, with what God really cares about and wants. And Jesus tells the Pharisees, you're just like that. Go and learn what this means. Oh, you're concerned about who I'm eating with or how I'm washing my hands or how I'm doing this. I'm showing mercy to these people. And this is what the Father really wants. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus loves sinners. He loves to be merciful to sinners. And sometimes people think to themselves, oh, well, it's, it, I'm too late in life. As if it's like, you know, our, our retirement account that you got to, you know, you, everybody tells you, you got to start retirement early. You got to start retirement early. And sometimes people get to, you know, later in life and realize that they haven't saved enough for retirement and realize, I, you know, I'm out of time. I can't get there. That's not how it is with God. You don't get to a point to where you say, well, you know, I'm just, it's too late for me to catch up with God. He loves to forgive. He loves to show mercy. He loves to be around sinners. He loves to change sinners' lives. He loves people who have no other option, no other place to go but to Him. He loves to forgive them. If you're here this morning and that's where you find yourself, it's not too late. It's not too late. Jesus had a meal with them. He would have a meal with you too if He were here. He loves you. And he wants to forgive you. This week as I was preparing this message and studying, I got to about Friday. And I had reached this point in the message, and I thought, wow, that's, you know, that's really cool what God has done for us. And I realized at that point, as I was looking at it, I had gone through all of these steps and all of these things in the text, and I had read all of this, and it was just as dry and as dead as it could be. It hadn't, for me, reached my heart. Because what I was doing as I was reading this text, I'm not sure who I was identifying with in the story, Maybe with, you know, the disciples, you know, I'm with Jesus. But it hit me. He has authority over my sin. That the things that I have done that I can never undo, the lies that I've told that I could never undo, the hurtful things that I've done, the things that I've said, the things that I could never, ever undo it, I... I'm one of those tax collectors and sinners who is an outsider. Unless there is someone who has the authority from God to look at me and say, your sins are forgiven. 
And that's what Jesus did for me. And I don't care if you've been saved since childhood, similar to what I have been, or if you're going to give your life to Jesus today, this should hit you emotionally. That we were stuck. There was, there was no way to undo our sin. And God, sent, God the Father sent His Son to say, Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Turn with me. We're going to look at two more places. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Why did Jesus... Why did Jesus look at this man and his friends and immediately jump to your sins are forgiven? I mean, this guy hadn't even repented yet, right? This guy hadn't even said, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus hadn't even done any of that. Jesus just sees their faith and says, forgiven. Why does Jesus do this? Paul kind of fills in the dots for us here. Romans chapter 4, picking up at verse number 1. What then shall we say? was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. So what did Abraham get? For if Abraham was justified by works, by what he did, namely circumcision, you're going to see, if Abraham was just, if Abraham was made right before God by circumcision or by stuff, by what he did, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Scripture says this, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham, let's, let's, let's substitute out the word believed God for the word that we saw in Matthew, faith. Abraham had faith, and God looked at Abraham at his faith and said, righteous. That man is righteous. Before he was circumcised, before he had done anything else, before he had done anything else that God asked him to do, God said, move, and Abraham moved out of faith, and God looked at that and said, righteous man. And so we see this man is brought as it was by a stretcher to Jesus. And Jesus sees their faith, even before they had repented, even before any of this had happened. Jesus sees their faith and says, that's a man whose sins have been forgiven. That's a righteous man. That's somebody who believes in who I am. That's someone who knows who I am and acts on it. I don't, it doesn't matter what else he says. I see faith. He's righteous. Jesus sees the, the men coming, sees, the, the, sees it come down and looks at this man with his faith and says, your sins are forgiven. You're a man of faith. You're like Abraham. Abraham was a man of faith. You're following in the ways of Abraham. You are walking in faith. You're, you are righteous. Your sins are forgiven. Verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift not as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes, or who has faith in him, in Jesus, or God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David, who also speaks of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works of the law. And here's his quote from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Do you realize what God has done for you in Jesus? You can look around and say, you know, I just, I, 
I'm struggling financially, or I'm struggling with this area, and I don't feel blessed of God. And David, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looks and says, if you've been forgiven, you are blessed. Blessed is the one who God takes your list of sins that we all have and says, forgiven, not counted, not counted. You are blessed. One day we will stand before a judge, a righteous judge, Jesus Christ. We will stand before him in one sense as sinners. People who sinned and can do nothing about it. We see this picture. If you want to turn to Revelation 5, this is where we'll end. We see this picture of the scroll, which we understand to be the book of life. The book where those who are part of the kingdom, those who have been forgiven, their names are written in this scroll. And John is seeing this vision. He says, I, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that's God the Father, him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. So it like had you know, these wax seals on it. You couldn't open it. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? So the, the, the image here is of the Father on the throne holding the scroll and there's nobody to open it. There's nobody who can take it from the hand of the Father and open it up and see the names that are in it. There is no one who is worthy to do that. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seas, seals. We will stand before a judge who is worthy, who has authority to forgive sins who is worthy to open the scroll, who is worthy to take it from God, who is worthy to say, you know what? They're with me. I've forgiven them. I've said, they're, they are righteous. We serve one who has that power to do that, the authority. And between the throne, verse 6, and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayer of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, what was the words of their song? Worthy are you, 
to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. There is one who can open the scroll. There is one who is worthy. There is one who has authority to say, your sins are no longer counted against you. Your sins are forgiven. We have hope. We don't look forward to future fearful judgment because Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. He has authority to forgive. And all of us who are believers walk in that, live in that, and have joy in that. He has authority. As we've talked about authority, we've said, what what does that mean? That person has the right or the power to say it, and it is. Someone can walk up to one of us and say, you're forgiven, and it means nothing. Jesus says, you're forgiven, and it means everything. Because he has authority over sin. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, what you have done for us. The power and the authority that is in your name, that, is it, that are in your words. Lord, we, we marvel at your authority to heal. We marvel at your authority over the elements of this world. But Lord, we... you have authority over our sins. That you have authority to forgive sins. It takes our breath away. It leaves us speechless. It leaves us with nothing to do but to worship. moments here and lift our hearts and our voices in gratitude and wonder and thanks for his forgiveness.
are bowed and your eyes are closed. Authority to forgive sins. Blessed are those whose sins are not counted against them. Maybe you're here today and you would say, my sins are counted against me. My list before God is long. I stand before him today guilty of sin. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority to wipe your slate clean. Jesus has authority to say, your debt is paid. Your sins are forgiven. There is nothing left. Nothing left in the debt column. Nothing, le- nothing left in the guilt column. And maybe you're here this morning. We have some among us who would say, that's me. I need forgiveness of sins. I need Jesus to forgive me. Maybe for you, you've, this is something you have never, ever done in your life. You've never turned your heart to Jesus. You've never put your faith in Him and never been forgiven. Or maybe for you it was something you did months ago, years ago, decades ago, and your life has no bearing on that today. And for you it would be a matter of of rededicating, coming and confessing your sins and saying, Jesus, forgive me. And so if that's you, well, no one's looking around. I want to just... We talk about faith being action. I want to give you the opportunity to take your first action step, your first step of faith between you and God. And that's simply by doing this, by raising up your hand and saying, God, that's me today. I need forgiveness. So if that's you, you need forgiveness today. You're away from God. You're far from Him. And you need forgiveness. While no one's looking around, take your first step of faith before God. And right now, lift up your hand. Say, that's me. I need Jesus today. I need forgiveness today. I need Him. Yes. You can put your hand down. Anybody else? That's me today. I need forgiveness. I need forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to pray a prayer of conclusion, of of gratitude for what he's done. We'll be dismissed. If you want to come and pray, you're certainly always welcome to do that. But let's lift our, our hearts and our voices toward God. Lord, for those among us who have raised their hands, thank you speaking by your spirit to them and as they pray as they verbalize their faith may they find that you are a friend of sinners that you love to forgive and that you have authority to forgive